Welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is an award-winning platform that helps our clients and community manage their financial crime risk exposure. We aim to democratise due diligence through our AI-powered AML and KYC platform, our expert research and insight into emerging financial crime threats, and our deep dive intelligence for enhanced due diligence. Find out more at wearethemis.com. I'm Henry Williams. I'm Head of Investigations at Themis, and my background is doing corporate investigations and a bit of journalism on the side as well. Okay, and Jonathan, okay, over to you. My name's Jonathan Siklos. I'm Diligentia's Regional Director, and I'm based in Dubai. I've lived here for 15 years, but I've been working in investigations in the Middle East for closer to two decades. Uh, I am a, a reformed or struggling Arabist, I should say. So I used to speak Arabic pretty well before I moved to Dubai. Uh, but since then, it's been getting steadily rustier. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Jonathan. And really, really pleased you can join us today to, um, you know, to discuss, I think, the importance of being able to conduct investigations in the Middle East, North Africa region, which is, which we all understand is, you know, is a very vast region with lots of, lots of different styles across it. Um, and I think that's one of the things we're really looking forward to drawing out in today's conversation is just the variety of the region, the sort of different ways of accessing information and how important it is to be able to access this information. So I think just as a sort of starting point, what I'd like to ask, what do you think then when we're talking about gathering information, intelligence and evidence, it all sounds, you know, quite spooky or like being a policeman or something, but it's not. I mean, this is something we do day to day as corporates. So I think it'd be really good if you could maybe just sort of set out, you know, what these different meanings, um, you know, actually mean. Yeah, of course. Sorry, different meanings of what? So sorry, there's different terms. So I see, you know, when we're talking about the difference between information, intelligence and evidence. I guess, you know, one of the questions we have is what is the difference there? What do we mean by these terms? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and actually, it really depends who's asking and, and why they need the information. So one, one man's intelligence will be another man's evidence. But let's take uh, the example of a compliance professional who is instructing an investigator to look into a third party to conduct due diligence of them on them before onboarding them as a client, for example. There, there will be a range of information which is gathered, some of which I suppose would, would meet an evidential standard. So it is gathered uh, from an official source. And on the other hand, some of it may be from a less formal, uh, a less formal source. So let's say an online blog or, or something that has been told to the investigator by a human source. So there's a, a bit of a spectrum on which information is gathered from the evidential at one end, which I suppose can be verified to a forensic standard to the more intelligence at the other end of the spectrum where we have intelligence, which needs, as any piece of information does, to be weighed properly and analysed for, I suppose, its provenance and how many times it's been independently corroborated. Okay. And, um, you know, I think one of the other questions then obviously we immediately have of that is why, why would people, why would companies need these sources of information? So I think we've alluded to that a little bit already. Again, it, it depends on, on, there are a number of different use cases for what we might call business intelligence and investigations. And that depends on who is asking effectively. So let's say a compliance professional will be asking for information usually to feed into their third-party risk and their due diligence and their KYC and KYB processes. Now, on the other hand, disputes lawyers often engage investigators um, and intelligence professionals, uh, and they have a very different reason for it. They'll usually be looking to either conduct um, what we might call an asset trace or a fit to sue assessment. 
Um, so in the case, I'll take the second one first. A fit to sue assessment is something that would you, you would usually conduct in the early stages um, of a legal dispute to establish whether your counterparty will be able to satisfy an award or a judgment when that award or a judgment actually arrives. And effectively, that is looking at the potential quantum of the claim and the time frame over which the, the case may play out. So if we're talking about $15 million and an expected judgment in three years' time, the question is, is the counterparty good for it? Are they fit to sue for that quantum over that period of time? And that's what an investigator would be trying to get to grips with in this case. So is it likely that the counterparty would have that payment capacity for $15 million in three years' time? Now, to take the first example, asset tracing, which is another sort of service provided by uh, an investigator to disputes lawyers and general counsels, that tends to be employed when there's already uh, an award or a judgment. And the question is whether or not the counterparty can pay right now. So do they have assets to satisfy the amount of that award or judgment? So a compliance professional, disputes lawyers, transaction lawyers or members of a deal team may well be interested in, in understanding corporate structure or may well would indeed be un- interested in understanding corporate structure, which is a crucial part of uh, due diligence in any transaction. So there are a number of different use cases and a number of reasons why people uh, would want to instruct an investigator. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, um, you know, I think thanks very much for um, ex- explaining that difference. And I mean, I think certainly, you know, here at FEMA, it's one of the, you know, one of the major purposes we have is is helping firms manage financial crime risks. So, you know, dealing with those financial crime concerns, which, you know, I think, you know, almost it goes beyond compliance. It's to really understanding who your counterparty is. And I think, you know, historically, one of the issues a lot of firms have faced in the Middle East, North Africa region is understanding who who owns companies there. And, you know, often that information either sits in phys- physical registries, which you can't access online, or it might not even be accessible at all to an outside party. So I think, you know, from the point of view of, you know, understanding financial crime, understanding your counterparties, why is it so important that we know who owns a company? At the most basic level, I suppose, if people want to transact business, they do it through a company. I mean, that, that, that may sound incredibly simplistic, but using a company allows you to limit your liability in the transaction. It gives you the agency to do business. So in short, and, and again, this may seem like an extremely obvious point, but unless you know who owns and controls a company, you don't really know who you're doing business with. You, you don't know what other companies they own. They don't know, uh, you don't know who they're connected to. You don't know how they transact with their other business partners. You don't know what sort of reputation they might have, whether or not there are any of these compliance-related issues, um, whether or not they've been involved in in money laundering, whether or not they're politically exposed, whether or not there's any sanctions exposure. Um, So, I mean, that does sound very simplistic, but unless you know who owns and controls a company, you don't really know who you're doing business with. Yeah, I think that's really, and you know, obviously one one of the huge frauds we saw in the region was um, the one MDB fraud where... You know, Joe, Joe Lowe and his cronies named, named their companies after established UAE sovereign wealth funds. 
but obviously the ownership was completely different. And, um, you know, that, that, thereby was the fraud because they convinced people by that name to invest money into it and to overlook these transactions. But actually the money was going to someone entirely different. I don't know. You yeah. Know, you've, you've had a long experience in the region. I don't know if you've come across similar cases, which, you know, might not hit the headlines so much, but equally useful proof of just why it's so dangerous to not understand who you're dealing with. Yes, very much so. I mean, I probably shouldn't be surprised anymore in this job, having done it for the best part of two decades, but I I frequently am. I I mean, just I could give any one of a number of examples, but what I saw more recently or or quite recently during a discussion with a prospective client looking for investment from the Middle East was an example of where they'd been approached by individuals claiming to be acting on behalf of a well-known holding company owned and run by a prominent Abu Dhabi family. So not dissimilar to what you described. Now, my prospective client did their own online due diligence, which uh, involved confirming what the individuals had said to them, i.e. that the company existed, that it was high profile and wealthy, that the prominent family was behind it. But the client had doubts given that they couldn't link the individuals they were talking to the company in question. And when the time came for contracts to be drawn up and money to change hand, lo and behold, a new company was introduced and and the excuse given that this is just how things are done in the region to protect high profile individuals. So is this the way things are really done? Sometimes. But our client didn't like it. and, And when we looked into it, we also couldn't demonstrate a corporate link between the individuals they were talking to and the company they thought they were going to uh, partner with, which which brings us back to your your previous question: Why is it so important to know uh, who owns and controls a company? But that's just you know one of uh, I mean there are, I have so many examples and they, and they come fairly thick and fast. I mean I've lost track of the number of times that a client has come to me saying that uh, they're having trouble with a new partnership relationship in the region, which seems so promising. And they share some details with the partner. And I, I can see, unfortunately, straight away that things don't really add up, uh, particularly when the local partner has been representing themselves as a member of a local ruling family. And, and you can see with just a little bit of grounding in Arabic naming conventions and local research that this was really never a, a genuine opportunity. Yeah, I think, I think these cases, there's always, they always seem to dangle a lot of money in front of people and that can often blind people to actually what's going on and, you know, how important it is just for someone to say, okay, wait, hold your breath for a minute and let's actually, let's actually look at, look into this. Just to give a, another example, I mean, that those are fairly sort of high profile, sexy uh, examples, but I mean, more commonly, uh, I see this all the time when you start to unpick corporate structures, you find that a family member of a company's procurement manager owns that company's key supplier, for example. Or I, I've seen a, a case before where the same individual uh, has incorporated four new and totally inactive companies just to set his own company up against four no-hopers in a tender process, in an official tender process. So uh, at a, le- a less exalted level, not involving ruling families or high-profile high profile people, there's no end to how 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 naughty and sneaky you find people being which is where good access to information is fantastic in terms of undoing people's sneakiness and um, ensuring that everyone's everyone gets away okay i think you know then this i kind of brings me on to the question which is when we are talking about the mena region and um you know historically it has operated on a trust basis and part of that trust basis is you know is anonymity 
and, you know, not necessarily prying into other people's affairs. And I feel that seems to be almost very, very important culturally, but that's had to change and people are opening up now. But I'd be interested just from your experience, you know, what juris- what are the tough jurisdictions to gather information? What are what are the easier jurisdictions to gather information? My slightly glib answer to that question is that I find the UAE both the easiest and the hardest jurisdiction or, or country, I should say, in which to gather information. So if you look at, for example, corporate information, there is a massive spectrum within the UAE itself from the registry of the Dubai International Financial Centre, the DIFC, which is available online and is more or less live and which will disclose uh, ownership of companies. Then slightly further along that spectrum, you have the uh, onshore departments of economic development, which of which there are there is one in each of the seven emirates. They're fairly accessible and they provide they provide uh, a reasonable amount of information, including ownership and directorship. Then right at the other end of the spectrum, passing through all of the free zones, you have companies that are registered offshore with uh, Ras al-Khaimah um, Economic Zone or Jebel Ali Free Zone Authority, which are very, very low disclosure jurisdictions. All of this information is is publicly available. You just need to know where to go and what to do. And it's not available online. So that's a lot of infrastructure needed in just one country to gather corporate information. And there's a huge spectrum of, of disclosure. Now, on the other hand, gathering information via source inquiries, on the one hand, the UAE and particularly Dubai is, is a more open and, and dynamic society than almost anywhere else in the in the Middle East and North Africa region. But on the other hand, it's a very it's a place of very fragmented communities. Let me put it that way. So Emiratis comprise about fifteen, only fifteen one five percent of the permanent resident population. The biggest national group is the Indian National Group, which is about thirty percent. There are huge groups of Iranians, Pakistanis, other nationalities. And so if you want to make inquiries, you need to have contacts in those respective business environments. So at the same time, it's quite an open and dynamic society. But then on the other hand, you need more contacts. So in a, in a way, the UAE is both the easiest and the, and, and the hardest place to gather information. But just to give a, another couple of examples, I think, from the region, just on the on the subject of corporate information, so actual hard corporate information. In Egypt, um, Egypt is a particularly difficult jurisdiction to build up even a simple company profile. So uh, there are at least three different sources that you have to go to on the ground to construct even basic company filings. So you get the top level company registration details from the Ministry of Industry and Trade, or the Egyptian Stock Exchange for listed companies. You then have to go to the General Authority for Foreign Investment, or GAFI, to get shareholding information. And then to get the remainder of the information, including corporate activities, you have to look at the gazettes. So all of that needs to be done. And if you compare that, for example, with some more developed markets like the UK and, and what's available online there, UK Companies House, it's all available live and online and with one click. So Egypt is a challenging market. That's really interesting. I was I was struck by what you were saying about the UAE. I think last time last time I went for a wander on Jumeirah Beach, I saw a kiosk, which a nice loud purple kiosk with lots of Russian writing all over it, and um, realised all it was it's a one stop shop to go in and set, register your new UAE company. And 
again, I can't imagine the oversight in that particular area is, is huge. And obviously that's, that's a bit of a concern, especially as uh, what we are seeing is, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of Russian nationals, you know, essentially getting away from the sort of harder operating environment in, in Western Europe and, and instead moving towards the UAE, where obviously they're hoping they won't come under so much scrutiny. Yes. Well, I mean, that, that in, in a way, that's the kind of tension that the UAE, that, that exists between expansion and compliance in, in the UAE. I mean, it's treading a line between welcoming all and meeting the requirements and expectations of openness and promoting good corporate governance, particularly in light of the UAE's uh, FATF grey listing. But I mean, we could probably say the same thing of the region as a whole. I mean, Saudi, for example, which was fairly exclusively a US ally for a US, an ally of the US for, for many, many years is now casting its friendship net quite a lot wider and is tolerating illicit behavior in, in the name of investment. Yet it still wants to be seen as a, a major clean player in the region. Yeah. I, I, th- I think it's, it's very fascinating. The sort of the change seems to be happening very quickly. And, you know, I think certainly again, also going back to the UAE, it's, it's sort of, you know, certainly in some cases played a position as kind of a sort of broker between some of the parties involved in, in, in the war in Ukraine. And, you know, there's been conferences in Abu Dhabi of high level Russian ministers and also senior figures from Western powers as well. So it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting space at the moment. I think, you know, one of the things I'm gathering from this conversation is that, you know, I think particularly when you go back to the example you gave about Egypt and sort of having to find three different registries, having to go through the government gazettes and putting all this information together. And I just wondered, in from your point of view, do you think that sort of information gathering, intelligence gathering, is is this an art or is it a science? <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. Is it an art or or, or is it a science? I would say it's a, a science with artistic qualities to it in that you need to apply a scientific rigor to gathering information. You need to be very, very hot indeed on being clear about where information has come from and how confident you are in its provenance. And then if you imagine that on one axis, and then how many times that piece of information has been independently relayed to you. So not the information has come from one person, been repeated to 12 other people, and it's come back to you 12 times. That's not 12 different corroborations. That's just, that's just one. So I think you need to be fairly scientific about weighing the provenance of infina- information um, and how credible it is and triangulating it against other information. And you have to choose your words and how you report information very, very carefully. But then depending on what sort of work you do, there may be something, there may be some artistic element, which if you're so minded, you can squeeze into your work. For example, if you're, if you're building a profile of uh, a potential investment for a, for a deal team, they might want to have a story told about how a company was set up in business, where the capital comes from, who are the major driving figures, what is their reputation? So that's where the artistry comes in, particularly when you're doing any sort of due diligence, whether it's investment-driven due diligence or compliance-driven due diligence. It's painting a picture of the of, of the companies that you're profiling and the people behind them. I think there's probably less less room for art when it comes to doing dispute support work. So when you're working for litigators, arbitrators, third-party funders, general counsels. There, you can use the different 
the different information, intelligence, uh, evidence gathering techniques we discussed earlier. But at the end of the day, it's just the facts, Jack. You have to present them with assets or hard information about uh, the payment capacity or, or future payment capacity of a company. Um, and there you will be providing less of a holistic picture. Yeah, I, I'm... I went to a talk and it was given by, um, it was given by OSINT investigators from, um, various UK media companies. And one of the questions they got asked was, you know, are, are you all going to be replaced by AI very soon? And I thought one of the, one of the speakers actually had a very good, good answer. So she's a writer for The Guardian and she pointed out that AI is very good at replicating processes. So I think, you know, often that, you know, that science, that exact science you've been talking about, I think again is something which, you know, machines really can replicate. But they're not so good at doing theory and doing those theoretical leaps, which is half the fun of doing an investigation, I think, is you sort of, you use your previous experience to form judgments and hypotheses, which you can then go and test utilizing data. And so, yeah, again, it's, I do think it's fascinating that art versus science, but, you know, maybe if, if machines are coming, coming for all our jobs, maybe it's the artists who might, who might survive. Absolutely. The world always needs artists. And I think that it'll be the, I mean, mach machines have been taking our jobs for, this is not a new thing, although it has stepped up with chat G GPT, but machines have been taking our jobs for decades. And it is always at the, at the more commoditized, lower skilled side of the industries, whatever industries they are. And now, um, machines are coming for lawyers and machines are coming for investigators as well. And we see this particularly in on the compliance due diligence side of the business intelligence and investigations divide. And we've been seeing this for, for many years. This is, this is nothing new. And what is sufficient at the lowest level of compliance investigations is, is very much a handle crank report, which is largely made by a machine and maybe eyeballed to some degree by a human being, but, but, but on the other hand, may not be. And I, I think that this will increase and more compliance-driven investigations will be conducted by machines. But then there will be, I mean, I see this as a good thing. I'm not particularly pessimistic about my field. I think it will drive up standards. And I think it will mean that the people who are doing really good investment-driven due diligence, really good dispute support work, really good fraud and forensic investigations um, will be will be chased effectively to the upper upper margins of the industry by the machines. Yeah, I, I think so. I think exactly. I think, you know, working in tandem, it can only, it can only drive things better. And sorry, just reference to a Guardian journalist I referenced. She's called Manisha Ganguly and she's, she's definitely worth, worth looking at. I think also just going back to one of the other points you mentioned when you were talking about, you know, the UAE and you mentioned the FATF grey list and then obviously the ge geopolitical situation of Saudi Arabia and the United States and, um, you know, the various travails with OPEC. How is the region going to develop, do you think? I think particularly when we're ter in terms of a sort of environment where people can conduct investigations and gather information. Is it going to uh, become more open or do you see it becoming less open? Well, there is a bit of both. <laughs> There's a lot going on in the world. When is there not? But major markets such as Russia and China are closed off either completely or partially to Western investors who are now having to consider other high growth regions, especially our region, the Middle East and North Africa. And we've seen it time and time again. Uh, in the UAE, particularly in Dubai, that where there's trouble elsewhere, wars, economic difficulties, people head here. 
because it's so welcoming, because it's so well managed, because it consistently has that growth mindset, even when it's down. Now, if you add to that a fairly high oil price, which has given Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Qatar huge liquidity and resulted in these giga projects like Neon, which are hoovering up resources from around the rest of the region and the rest of the world. In short, it, it is going to mean a lot of work for investigators and for people fighting financial crime. It's, it's not just the scale of the change, but it's the pace of the change. And checks, balances, procedures always come second to something needing to be built. And uh, ultimately, it's good news for the investigator. And I, I know we've, you know, we've been talking about the sort of the, the good, bad and ugly. So maybe sort of sort of start finishing up on maybe a slightly lighter note. What is, um, what would you say is the um, most surprising thing you've come across in um, one of your investigations out, out in the region? I, I think, I mean, some of these I've mentioned uh, already, uh, and, and, I, and I probably shouldn't be so surprised by them anymore. But I suppose I did have to laugh when I encountered that a case where where an individual who was going for an official tender had incorporated four new inactive companies just so there would be no competition, just so he could enter them as his competition and then win it effectively by default. I mean, I, I had one of those head, investigators head in the hands moment, sort of so bad that it's good. But yeah, the, there's no shortage of stories of, of, of unpicking corporate structures and, and, and finding that family members are, uh, are, are awarding contracts to, to one another. It's all there in the detail if you choose to find it. And I think that's why, um, you know, we at Themis, we're so pleased to be partnering with Diligentsia to really be able to provide that, that, that solutions in terms of finding that hard information. And however creative or badly behaved or sneaky people can be, at some point there is a written record of it. And having that expertise to be able to find it in, in such a diverse region is, um, is, is so important. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to sort of just cover just before, before we sign off in terms of, you know, un- understanding the importance of data, the importance of, um, you know, doing your due diligence before going into business and just the future of the, of the MENA region. I think it might be just worth briefly just touching on why it is difficult in the Middle East and North Africa to, to gather information. I mean, I think it's, um, as, a, as a Middle East, a long-time Middle East uh, resident, 15 years, and a student of the region, I, I do find it an interesting topic. I, I think as a rule of thumb, generally speaking, emerging markets tend to be more opaque and provide lower access to corporate information. But I also think that there are some specific reasons why it it has been difficult to access in this particular region. Um, The first one being that information is often fragmented. So many countries in the Middle East are divided up into regions which operate somewhat independently, I guess, on a federal system. And there's nothing unusual with that from a global perspective. It's just that the states aren't often that harmonized or aligned. And and we've already spoken about the UAE, uh, which is divided up into the seven emirates, each one with its own registry. But then on top of that, there are 42 free zones and two specialist financial zones. And each one of those has its own registry. Now, there have been efforts in the UAE to, to centralize and standardize some of this information. But thus far, the initiatives haven't really been able to get past the legacy structures and the multiple stakeholders. So the information is often fragmented um, in in many countries in in the Middle East and North Africa. Secondly, the registries are not always digital. Some of them are still paper-based, or indeed they're partly digitalized, but only after a certain date. 
So uh, um, there's also a gazette system in place in, in, in many countries where, where company details um, are modified through notifications or rather notifications about modifications are provided on a regular, in a regular business periodical. And that's, that's what we call a gazette. And I think lastly, and I've alluded to this already, accessing information in any region tell, tends to follow cultural norms. And in the Middle East and North Africa, non-publicly listed companies are often seen as just that. They're private and they're no one else's business. This is changing, but more quickly in, in some jurisdictions than others. Yeah, and I think, you know, this, this battle between sort of, you know, access to information and privacy is, is being played out worldwide. I, I, you know, recently the EU took had a, had a ruling which said that all company registers need to be taken offline for precisely this reason regarding privacy. So, you know, in, in certain um, examples, actually, you'd find that places like the UE are now more open than many jurisdictions in, in Western Europe. Um, and, you know, from an investigator's point of view, what we want is that sort of openness. And so it's great to see that sort of region sort of making those sort of steps. Well, Jonathan, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's, um, it's really fascinating to hear your insight, you know, with your, with your experience in, in the region and obviously the, the wide, what wide array of skullduggery you get to see in, in, in your line of work. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Themis Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about Themis, please do contact us via our website at wearethemis.com or drop us an email at info at wearethemis.com. Thank you.